out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is David Eastall, the C86 Show. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the American singer-songwriter. It is the one and only Penelope Houston, singer with the San Francisco-based punk band The Avengers, who started in this sort of mid-70s and supported the Sex Pistols on their last ever gig during that particular period and has gone on to have a prolific solo career so do check out her various pages and sites I think there is a very good one Penelope Houston Avengers site so um, you can find that and also Bandcamp as well but anyway this is the interview which is fascinating so um, yeah so after several minutes of casual but interesting chat we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years Penelope take it away Um, well I actually interestingly um, when I was younger I started listening to um, Pentangle and Incredible String Band and a lot of um, the British folk from that period, uh, psych folk. I don't know what we, I don't know what you call it. But, yes, um, well, it's, it's kind of, yeah, because there was the Incredible String Band. There was another band called Comus who was really kind of very artsy and, and slightly kind of folk classical they had so many influences and lots of literature as well so that was incredible but the incredible string oh. band it's the hangman's yeah. beautiful so that was you know early days and then later uh, discovering patty smith and lou reed um brian ferry uh just uh, the beginning the pre-punk kind of people yes and then in uh, the very beginning of 77 I moved to San Francisco which is actually where I am I'm not I'm not in Los Angeles (laughs) I was born there but I haven't lived there for a long time right um I came to San Francisco to go to the art institute the San Francisco art institute and then at that point very early 77 started listening to you know the damned and the Ramones and all the classic early all the classics. So how did you manage to, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very curious and excited about your early folk moment with the incredible string band and Pentangle. Did you like Steel Eye Span as well? Or, or did that not sort of come into your consciousness? Uh, or, that one didn't come in my raid under my radar. Did you, were your, were your sisters all about them, but. Right. Yes. And there was also Fairport convention, wasn't there? And, um, Richard Thompson and Linda Thompson, which had amazing records. Did we, did you, were your parents all uh, sort of musical or bohemian at all? Um, my mom, yes, we were, there were three of us kids and I'm the youngest and my mother, um, she got her, her, uh, PhD in music in at Stanford University. She was very musical and we were brought up playing violins and cellos and wow, that's um, impressive. She had a grand piano and um so we had music as part of our life right. from very early on, but as far as pop music goes, I would think I was more exposed by uh, <clears throat> the older brother of, of of one of my best friends and he you know, he brought like Bonzo Dog Band and um, some kind of oddball early, earlier 70s British um, bands. And 
I fell in love with the the British folk sound Fantastic. at that point. I was in yeah. early teens. I guess there was people like Martin, yeah. is it Martin Carthy and then the Waterstones, Watersons and, and people like that. Yes, I've I've got quite a love of folk music as well, which is quite interesting. But Yanch, Yanks and Yanch. And Davy Graham has got this amazing song called Angie, which is just as on a sort of acoustic guitar, which I love. I'm the youngest of three as well, actually. And I was very influenced by, by my older brother, who he was into the world of um Prog rock, you know, it was, yes, Genesis, Wishbone, Ash, Barkley, James Harvest, all the classics, really, and a few bits of folk, but not that much. But it was later on that I started to love. I just had this kind of, you know, I don't know, I veered into folk somewhere down the line occasionally. I'd always dip in. I'm really impressed with your incredible string band, because every five years, I'd want to play that record and really get it, and then always find it's like, oh, no, it's just too much. And then I did an interview <laughs> with, with Rose from the band, and she was just amazing, because she brought a book out or wrote a book last year, I think, and um, and she was just the most engaging and lovely person I've ever met. So it's really nice, actually, to meet the, the person. And they played Woodstock, so there you go. So they, uh, Oh, yeah. Well, it's funny because people assume, because I'm famous for the Avengers, or I should say more famous for the Avengers, that I, you know, people are surprised that I was not into rock as a child yes. or like a young person. I never said rock and roll saved my life or anything like that. It was no. really other kinds of music. And then um, later, when punk rock started, I kind of dove into that. But then, but, yes. you know, all the obvious rock bands I wasn't, I wasn't really into. Did you go through a sort of singer-songwriter phase, like people like, you know, Melanie and then sort of Joni Mitchell and Carole King and, and, um, and those kind of, you know. Oh, yeah. Like my very earliest albums um, before I was exposed to, you know, Bonzo Dog Band would have been uh, Cat Stevens, Joni Mitchell, the um, ones I actually brought home. And uh, so there was a little bit of that at the very beginning. And, yeah. I, and, you know, obviously I heard the Beatles um, as well, but my my family, we, you know, most of the records in the house were classical um, or our opera. There, were, there was very little pop music in, in the house. So I had to go outside of my house to, to find it. But I did buy uh, a couple of Cat Stevens and a couple of Joni Mitchell when I was you know, 13 or something. God, those early Cat Stevens records are amazing, actually, aren't they? Just, um, yeah. I can't remember that. I'm not going to remember the film, but there was a lovely film with this young boy who, you know, befriends a very older lady woman. And um, and the soundtrack is all Cat Stevens stuff, which is just really incredible. Oh, Harold and Maude. That's the one. Oh, yes, there you go. You've got a better memory than me. But that's such a great <laughs> film. And uh, there you go. Did you, I mean, when did you start sort of, sort of discovering your voice and, and singing. Was there a particular, you know, was it Jackie from Pentangle who who was the lead singer from that band? God, I can't remember. Uh, I think so. Um, I, I don't know. We always just had music around, you know. We were the kind of kids who had to sing madrigals, at Chris, you know, and Christmas carols. And I was in the chorus and the madrigal groups in junior high and high school and yeah um, so I think singing just always seemed like an obvious 
you know, part of my life, but also I, you know, I was focused on visual arts and I wanted to be an artist. Um, and when I moved to the Bay Area, I was, I was transferring to the Art Institute. I started school really young when I started going to college when I was 16. Right. And I moved up from Seattle to Bellingham, where there was kind of a hippie school going on attached to the university. And I started going there and taking a lot of art classes. And then I got into the Art Institute and moved and moved down here. Yeah. So I didn't think I was going to be a musician, per se, even though my family had a number of musicians in it. I thought I was going to be a, a painter. <laughs> <laughs> what period, what, what, what sort of particular sort of period were you, you know, particularly fascinated by with the, on, on the art front? Because obviously you'd have been growing up during that 60s period. And, and there was also people like the Coquettes who were, and the Fire Sign Theatre Company who were, in the sort of west coast or west areas so i don't know if any of those sort of crept into your consciousness oh yes i was into a fire sign um theater and i did make friends with um the the z whiz kids which was the kind of version of the coquettes that existed in seattle excellent uh, from a super young age and uh <laughs> Um, yeah, but, uh, that was, and I actually, I, I, that's funny. I just thought I also joined this, um, very tiny theater, a very tiny off-Broadway kind of theater troupe in Seattle when I was a teenager as well. And I was in some plays there, but they were, you know, Isbin and, you know, classic, I think yes. there was some Shakespeare there. I was just like, playing very tiny roles, but um, was also into theater in that way. Yes. And then, you know, I discovered, when I discovered um, the, the WizKids and, had, and made some friends with people involved with them, um, I was hanging out with uh, Tamita Duplenty and Tommy Gear, who eventually created the screamers which is a wonderful la band that many people have never heard of <laughs> early band um but in seattle they were called the tupperwares and they had a slightly different lineup but yes. i remember going to some of their super early shows in 74 or 5 and yes. um yeah and then when i moved to california and told them i was starting a band they they gave me advice. <laughs> they had already moved to LA and started the Screamers, so yeah, they gave me some good advice. That's that's always handy. When we did you just briefly on that front? Did you start getting interested in things like performance art as well? Because the sixties was just full of this kind of interest in experimentation and and sort of free flowing sort of exhibitions. I suppose people well, like uh I would say, you know, I was like 12 when 1970 happened. So yes, you were pretty. <laughs> I, I probably wasn't into anything too esoteric at that time. Although, yes. you know, I was aware of people like Judy Chicago and, you know, bigger um, artists and who were doing performance art. But it wasn't, that wasn't something that I thought I was going to dive into. No. Per se. 
It's a whole nother I mean, world. I was kind of open to any kind of music or art. That's the way I was brought up. It was those were the twin gods of my of my family's house house. So I um, always figured I would be some kind of a creative person. Yes, well, absolutely, no doubt. <laughs> so, what was your first kind of gig that you went to? Which, um, yes, I was always kind of curious. Actually, what was your first kind of live concert? Uh weirdly I think it was maybe maybe Keith Jarrett was playing at the at the university I was going to but also I I remember going to see the who in Seattle um in the 70s mid 70s I guess just because somehow I got in for free I don't know um yes but we didn't go to very much pop music like you know that wasn't something that my family did or that or that many of my friends and I mean I was too young to go to a lot of clubs or places but um I remember seeing Mose Allison when I was really young I was a huge fan of Mose Allison as well fantastic my God, you got such a you got such a sophisticated taste here, haven't you, Keith Jarrett? <laughs> so, kind of raised the bar quite a lot here, really. <laughs> yes, these are these are major people, aren't they? Fantastic. And uh, so then punk comes along. You're 16, 18, and it all starts to happen. Was that quite a a moment? You know, did it feel like the doors the door had been kicked down or that opened or some some description, and, and uh, things changed? Yeah, I think the first thing that I heard was Patti Smith's album, Horses, and that really opened my mind up to this kind of different different music. Um, and it was kind of around the same time when I moved uh, to go to the Art Institute. I was 19 and I moved to San Francisco. And um, then I saw all these posters up in San Francisco, because of course there were no cell phones and there were no zines or anything at that point. And that was the only way to communicate was by putting up Xerox posters. So yes. I remember seeing these posters for a band called Crime in January of 77. And I thought I need to go to that show. And I think it was 18 and over. It was at the Mabuhe Gardens, which was a kind of failing Filipino supper club that was trying out new um, new ideas like having kind of off-ball sort of fire sign theater wannabe theater groups doing stuff yes. and crime somehow got uh, a night there and um, it was really their poster that drew me in interestingly they uh, and you know they were what they considered a rock and roll band. They didn't call themselves punk. Yeah. But all that came very soon after. The bands that had come to town already were the Ramones. And soon after that, the Damned. I think they were the first British punk band to come from yeah. uh, just to San Francisco. And then um, I remember seeing Blondie and the Bumps and all these bands basically came to the Mabuhe. And then Fantastic. after a few months, um, 
some friends of mine that had gone to the Art Institute, they decided they were going to form a band and they had a, they had a, a PA set up in this warehouse where they lived. And I was going out with one of them, Danny, Danny Furious or Danny O'Brien. And one day they left and I was there with the PA and I put on some records and started singing through the PA and I just fell in love with uh, amplification. Like <laughs> my voice is so loud. This is fantastic. And when they came back from wherever they went, I said, I I'm going to be your lead singer. So mm -hmm. they, they said, okay. And that was how the Avengers, you know, started basically. Um, yes. That's amazing. And, and then we you... did cover songs and we did Lou Reed and Patti Smith and the Kinks and various bunch of cover songs for the first show Excellent. that we played, which was at the warehouse. And then um, we got a show at the Mabuhe, which was like an after hours party. Um, and between getting that show and playing it, I made a trip to L.A., and I saw Tomato and Tommy from the Screamers. I told them what I was up to. And they said, oh, well, you can't do cover songs. You know, you got to write your own songs. I was <laughs> like, oh, OK. There was about a week before the show. So we wrote, I think, six original songs, um, which we played at that show. And it's funny because the first moment we got on stage, I was a little terrified being my first you know, club well, yes. show. And the band started playing and I just thought, I don't know how this song goes. This is so weird. I can't think of the lyrics or the melody. And then the band suddenly stopped playing and they all looked at each other and they were playing two different songs. So <laughs> um, then, then they started up playing the same song as each other. And then I suddenly, it all came to me and I was like, oh, okay. I can oh. do this. <laughs> yes, the as long as they're possible. playing a song, I know. Yeah. Yes, it must have been quite terrifying, actually, on that front. But you. <laughs> but how were the mumps? Because I did an interview with Gerald. Is it Christian Hoffman? You know. Oh yeah, the mumps were great. I love the mumps. I think there are some photos of me in the front row, uh, with the mumps. Um, Excellent. You know, like I think there's a picture of me like grabbing. Lance Loud's shirt from the audience in the front row. <laughs> um, he would have loved that one. I, yeah, I really loved them. I thought they were super fun. It was great when bands came from New York or England because they'd already been going for a while and they obviously had their songs written and they were, you know, been playing around and they, they had their chops. Whereas yes. a lot of the bands in San Francisco were just starting out and we were just like making it up as we went along, basically. Yes, this is good. But then what was it? Because your first, the first single EP is called We Are The One, isn't it? And and mm -hmm. and the band by then has, has got themselves completely together. Did that um, recording session go relatively smoothly? Um, well, it's funny. That was my first recording session as well. Um, and I think we had three songs that we did. We are the one car crash. And then this song what was called I Believe in Me, which didn't have any 
set lyrics. It just had a chorus. And we got in the studio and we were recording those songs. And when we got to I Believe in Me, we recorded um, the tracks, the backing tracks with the band. And I was just doing a scratch vocal. But by the time I finished it, I was, it was like, okay, that was it. I just gave my all and I made it, I made stuff up. And then um, the later the engineer said, okay, are you ready to do your real vocal? And I just said, oh no, just use that. <laughs> I'm like, that was it. I'm not going to come up with anything better. <laughs> like that was it. And that's what went out on the, on the single. Fantastic. So, that was pretty funny. <laughs> Well, yes, and we are the one. That's that's had a huge amount of play, hasn't it? It's um, yes, that is. That yeah, is it's kind of... probably one of our best known songs. We are the one in the American in me, I would say. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, that one was was kind of written. Most of the songs I wrote the lyrics to, and that one I wrote the lyrics to with um, Jimmy Wilsey, our bass player. Um, and Danny might have thrown in a word or two. Um, so it was more of a joint effort. And the funny thing is, people always got very serious about it, but it was it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek song, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is true. People do get very serious about these things. We take it very literally, don't we, those lyrics at a certain age in life. It's very important. But then you the band gets a lot of traction at this stage, don't they? And you you get some yeah, you play a lot of gigs and things are going relatively well. And also, is this you you support the Sex Pistols, don't you? As well, this is this is one of those. yeah. That was seventy eight January of seventy eight. So the following year, their last show, I guess. You their would last say. show. God, did you? Yeah. Had, had you seen them before, or were you? Was that the? Oh year? no! I mean, that was the first time they were on the West Coast. So I'd never been to England, so I'd never seen them. Um. And our single came out in October. So in January, in December, when we were asked to play with them, we were quite excited about it. And we, you know, it was the biggest show that we'd ever played and the biggest show they'd ever played at that point. Yes. Um, and everybody from the whole West Coast, from LA, San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, everybody came to San Francisco for that show. So I saw a lot of people I knew, and then there were a few thousands, a couple of thousands of people that I had no idea who they were. They just sort of came what for was, the spectacle. And what was the atmosphere like, you know, the build-up to that particular evening? The, um, the, well, the people that were there were, uh, like I said, maybe from the whole West Coast, there were maybe five or six hundred punkers or people that had already been following punk and then the other you know 5,000 people were just there to see this spectacle to see this punk rock circus so there were a lot of people throwing stuff on stage and and spitting on the stage <laughs> um, you know acting out as they thought they should be doing so the first band that played um, was the nuns and they got spat at a lot. And there's some rumor, I don't know if it's true. They had a very 
uh, Marlene Dietrich-esque um, female singer who played the keyboards and had this long blonde hair and sat very still. And someone said that, that she got hit with a loogie. And she didn't move. She just kept playing and it was rolling down her face oh. like a horrible tear. But I don't know. I'm not sure that that's true. But anyway, what I do know is when I went out there onto the stage in front of all these masses of people for um, for our set, I slipped on the stage and almost fell, but didn't quite it didn't quite hit the ground. And it was kind of terrifying. I just saw this mass of faces and I'd see, I'd recognize one person and then they'd just disappear into this kind of bubbling sea of, of uh, people. And um, I was kind of terrified, but you know, we got, we played our set and as the set progresses, I felt like we got stronger and stronger. And by the end of it, it felt very triumphant. Yes. Well, absolutely. And and did you get to have a chat? I mean, you, because Steve, does he produce your a recording session for the band, Steve Jones? Um, yeah, Steve Jones came back, but we didn't actually uh, spend any time meeting. I think during that first, during that show, I think I, you know, came face to face with Sid for a second. <laughs> but um, most of the Sex Pistols were not, hanging out during the show um johnny was come i think he was there with his wife maybe and right. they did not uh mix with the locals at all and then um sid and i think paul cook and steve jones went out to a party afterwards that uh some friends of mine threw and it was a massively crowded, crazy place. And later on that night, Sid OD'd and went to the Haight-Ashbury uh, free clinic where they revived him. <laughs> so um, there was no real contact with them for me. No, God. Uh, did, did, you see, did you see any of their set? Did you stay behind to see? Oh, yeah, yeah. Of course, of course. And In fact, they, um, I tried to go out into the audience during their set, and it was so crowded that you could lift your feet off the ground and still be standing up. Amazing. And it was, you know, covered in sweat. And it was other people's sweat. It right. was just, it was really, I, I went out and got as close to the front as I could, but it was it's kind of overwhelming. So then I kind of backed out and went backstage and watched the rest of their set from, yes. from the side stage. Um, and did they put a good show on? Was it a good show in the end, or did it just end um, in a? I think I think it was, but there are a few issues. Thing people say that Sid's bass was unplugged, that like Steve Jones didn't want to hear him at all, <laughs> and then um, Johnny Rotten uh, was his usual abrasive self, but. Um, I think that he was really fed up with the whole tour and it was the last show of that tour. Yeah. And then, then it turned it out to be the last show, you know. Did were you there when he said <laughs> when he said the famous, do you feel like yeah. you've been had? Yeah. You feel like you've been cheated. You've been cheated, yes. Johnny. Um, and it's interesting because their set and our set are available online. You can find them on YouTube. 
and watch the whole set. So wow. I'm sure people can make up their own lines. So then 79, <laughs> you go in and you record the first your first album, don't you? This is you, do you sort of at that stage you you've replaced a, a member of the band and then oh yeah our guitar player and and you know co-writer greg left the band and um and we got uh brad kent who was a canadian guitarist who'd played in a lot of well-known canadian bands and um went forward for just a few more months and um but before that happened we did do the recording with steve jones we recorded four songs including a song that he wrote most of and i think i rewrote a few of the lyrics right called one two three or one two three baby we also call it second to none on, on our record yes and then uh we recorded three other tracks with him and then <laughs> sorry then he left town I guess he had to go to Brazil or something. I don't know. He left town and it was unfinished. And then we worked on it. Um, eventually, I re-recorded some of the vocals and re remixed things. So there's two different mixes uh, for the that have come out into the world of a couple of the songs. And it wasn't until um, later that uh, when after that we replaced our guitar player and then we recorded a couple more songs with the new guitar player, Brad. Yes, um, Brad Kent. One, yeah, Brad Kent. And he co-wrote one of my favorites, which is um, Corpus Christi. And then we basically broke up. And after we broke up, a 12-inch EP came out that had four songs on it which included a song from Brad and three songs from the Steve Jones recording session. Yes. And did you, did you, were those um, recording sessions, did you enjoy them? Were they a good, good memory or good experience? <laughs> um, a lot of times when we were going to the studio, we went into the studio doing what we call demos um, a, a few times and it was on spec time where somebody worked at a studio and they'd have us come in and um, record in the middle of the night when nobody else was there. Yes. And we actually recorded at um, two well-known studios. One was, was called Wally Hyder and the other was the record plant in Sausalito uh, where Sly Stone had recorded all his albums. <laughs> And that was fun. I mean, but it was like the middle of the night. And some of those sessions, I was still writing lyrics as we, you know, rode in the bus to the studio. <laughs> so yeah. it was never like recording sessions that happened later in my life where, you know, I knew everything that was going to be recorded and the band knew their parts and people were very, we had producers and it was all very intentional yeah these all the things we did with the avengers seemed like they were kind of like we were there by the seat of our pants you know we were we were there doing the best we could but not quite prepared 
Yes, and did not and, as prepared anyway as I would be later later on in my solo recording career. What was the kind of the? Did you have a moment with the band, or did, was it kind of planned that you were going to kind of split or break up at that stage? Uh, no, I you know I think a couple of members just started making noises about breaking up the band, leaving the band, and. Danny and I had broken up as well, or were breaking up. And it just seemed like it was time for yes. the band to, to split. But it wasn't my decision. I wasn't the one who walked away or anything like that. I have to say, because the, the, the actual, you get an album out that comes out in 83. It's got a great cover, actually, isn't it? Um, <laughs> it's a great cover. Did did Thank that you. feel strange that the band had finished and then you go, oh, we've got an album. Oh, the band doesn't exist well, anymore. Right after we broke up, we had the the first 12 inch EP came out, and that one got a lot of airplay and attention. And it was on a small label based in Los Angeles. And um, you know, it was kind of like, well, this is all for naught because we've broken up, and then Years later, in 83, we'd already been broken up for, I guess, four years. Um, Danny cobbled together a bunch of the recordings and went and met with these people in San Francisco. And, and, and they put together the, what we call the Pink Album, the yes. Avengers self-titled album. And, um, you know, I, I love it. It's got a lot of great stuff on it, but it was also recorded, you know, in threes, twos and threes, those songs. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was a bit cobbled together. And then also the person that he worked with, um, who had the label was a really evil guy who, um, just took advantage of so many recording artists and bands and stuff. And, took advantage of us and we had to get into a big lawsuits with him later on in life. <laughs> so that one dra- kind of dragged on. It's like the contracts were in perpetuity. You know, there was no, we were, they had signed up the band. They'd signed away all the publishing and all this stuff. And uh, at that point um, in 83, I was living in London and doing other stuff and when I heard that this record came out I was like nobody asked me <laughs> you know yes so I didn't get a say in it <laughs> oh that's annoying isn't it really yeah has yeah, that all been tidied up now and and cleaned clean yes the album now belongs and the publishing now belong to the band and Fantastic. Uh, it, it took decades literally decades to sort, sort through that there's so many people I spoke to and it's it's kind of or they're in the process of trying to sort out this business and find some lawyer who's going to do it who's yeah it's hard it's hard and trying to locate where their tapes are to hopefully get them back one day and then they'll be able to do what they want well I learned a great lesson from that and when I went on to my solo career I always owned my tapes um until I signed to Warner Brothers and then they owned the tapes but most of my albums that are out of my solo career, I own all the rights to, and I own my publishing and everything. So yes, well, that's a good idea. 
<laughs> we'll learn true. from the Avengers. <laughs> a painful experience, really. But then, well, yeah. So when the band breaks, kind of, this is the early eighties, and 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 as as, as I've probably mentioned, I am a bit of an eighties indie kid, so it was a very exciting time. And you know, in the UK, you know, we had you know, suddenly Thatcher gets in the power, then there's the Falkland War, there's the miners' strike, huge amounts of unemployment, Green and Common, we thought we were all going to get blown up by a nuclear bomb. And then the sort of 83, the Smiths come along, you know, my favourite band of the 80s. Um, yes, and indie pop becomes a big thing. So what, your 80s, you come to the UK, don't you? This, you you sort of, you you get a passport and up, up, up and off you go. <laughs> Well, um, it's funny. What happened is um, I moved to Los Angeles after the Avengers broke up, which was the middle of 79. And I was working on a film in L.A. with a bunch of different musicians that ended up coming out with Tomato, that starred Tomato Duplenty of the Screamers. And it was called Population One. And that was in the works for a long time. And um, I was writing songs with people in L.A. And... <clears throat> Then uh, I met someone who's who's British, and we fell in love, and we got we got married. Um, probably eighty one, maybe in right. London, and I moved to London, and so I was there. I saw the Smiths opening for the Violent Femmes and um, Curtis Blow of all people. It was just the strangest. Uh, that is strange. Combination. Kirk. It was in a big. It was in a big theater, and um, before the Smiths were big at all, and Curtis Blow had that one hit song, "The Break." Um, wasn't it? Is it the break? What was it called? Curtis Blow. I remember there was some because yeah. John Peel used to play a lot of this, and I got really obsessed about the whole hip hop yeah. world doing the. Um, I wonder how I keep them going under. Ha 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 ha. <laughs> <laughs> um the name of it it's a oh so he song. did the one called the breaks which was kind of his most popular one and then the i don't know the breaks there you go i mean mm. they were all a little bit one hit wonder i know it's a sweeping statement <laughs> but i remember sort of being very keen and excitable and thinking yes i'm going to get into hip-hop and there was a compilation it was a, a label called street sounds that put these great compilations together and you thought oh they're brilliant i'll buy the album by that one band and you think oh no they've only got one good single haven't they the rest of the album can be a bit painful yeah. but there you go. well that was a, a very important moment for me because the violent femmes um were a big in inspiration to my next musical output the Violent Femmes, uh, Tom Waits, Leonard Cohen, people that were doing sort of dark yes. and slightly folky. Did you meet? Um, did you meet Daniel Figus at this point? He was, I think, he was a drummer with the band at one point. Daniel with uh, the, the Violent Femmes, yes. Or... No, I mean, I did, I didn't meet those guys. I think they're from. Island. Midwest, right? Minneapolis or something? Oh, actually, I never, so I never met them. I saw them play um, in San Francisco later and I saw them play really early on yes. in London. But um, that their first and second album influenced me in my kind of dark folk direction. <laughs> and yes. I also realized that I had folk inside me that I kind of had forgotten about for a decade or so. It came out when I put it? on the Pentangle record or 
an incredible string band record, I was like, I know every one of these songs. This is so weird. I'd forgotten that I'm actually, you know, a folky at heart. So then I started writing my own songs and they were in that more. um, So did you collaborate with Howard Devoto? Yes, yes. Uh, We had mutual friends in LA and then I first came out there actually to work with him when he was working on his first solo album. And um, he was looking for a female vocalist and I was looking to work with somebody and I was a huge fan. Um, So we started working together, but I realized that he already had all the lyrics written. He just wanted somebody to sing. And I was more somebody who was writing my own lyrics. So I ended up singing on one or two tracks in the background of those records, but I think he eventually found a female vocalist to work with yes. later for another project. Because the ages was... When he had me come out from LA to, uh, to London, that was when I, my husband and I met and fell in love and Fantastic. going back there and getting married and staying nice. for a couple of years. Was he a musician as well or nothing to do with music? Uh, he was a super creative person and he ended up learning how to play mandolin and guitar and played in my band um, for 10 years, probably in my solo bands. Right. We wrote some songs together and we're still really good friends, although I'm a couple of husbands on from that. <laughs> <laughs> it happens, doesn't it? It happens. Yeah. But um, yes, because the 80s, apart from being great for indie pop, there was also that rise. There was the sort of the 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 kind of suddenly we had Michelle shocked and then we had Suzanne Vega and then we had Tracy Chapman. So suddenly this kind of and there had been people like the Marine Girls and also the Raincoats and then everything but the girl. Did you did you also start to embrace some of that kind of acoustic kind of singer-songwriter material as well from the 80s? Um, I think before that, I was, I was listening to, um, I don't know if you remember this band, Three Mustafas Three. Yes. Yeah, they were friends. And um, I remember thinking maybe we could work on something together. But um, nothing really came about until um, Mel, my husband Mel and I came back from England to the US and we thought we would have this um, drive around the country. We we bought this old 1966 Dodge Dart and we were going to drive it from Seattle down the West Coast across the country and uh, up to New York and then sell it and then go back to England. And the car broke down (laughs) in San Francisco and we stayed and he still actually lives here. in San, in San Francisco. And uh, we stayed and we started working on music here with a few people. And this is like 83, 84, maybe. Yes. Um, and there was a whole little kind of punky folk scene starting here as well. Um, not so much bands that got signed or anything, but um, I was playing a lot and uh, had a had a little band with stand-up bass and mandolin and guitar and sometimes some percussion. And um, 
we got the attention of some people in Germany and in the late 80s, early 90s, um, I got, I, there was a label in Germany called Normal and they put out uh, two or three of my records and then that caught the eye of Warner Brothers in the later mid 90s and they started, they signed me. Yes. Started recording. <laughs> so when you did those, More the serious. first few albums, there was like Bird Boys on Borrowed Time, which is a live album, and then mm-hmm. and then Five Hundred Lucky Pieces. So you you've done quite a lot of records, you know. Well, some of those are just like. On Borrowed Time and 500 Lucky Pieces are more like compilations of live material and, and outtakes and demos. Um, the the real recorded albums were Bird Boys and then The Whole World and Caramel Apple, which only came out in Germany, basically. Right. And um, those uh, were me going into a studio and paying for it myself and recording and owning the tapes and then licensing them to different labels. And the Germans really, really embraced it. And then no, no, they're, they're fantastically, the next... I mean, every artist I know who's, you know, in the UK really up until Brexit really relied on going to Europe and, you know, often said, oh, the German market is the one that will just keep us going for the, for the rest of the year. You know, we just have to sort of get to Germany and um, we'll be okay for uh, the next, you know, 11 months nearly. I think there's a Sweden yeah. statement. We were amazed at how well we were treated there. And, you know, there were booking agents that would just book, like the first tour we did in, in Europe was, I think it was 36 shows in 40 days or something like that. And we'd never done more than, you know, eight shows in a row on tour, like yes. yeah, touring, touring the United States is, takes a lot of driving, you know, it's like things aren't, <laughs> cities aren't as close together. So we had this huge tour of seven weeks and we just thought, or six weeks, I just thought I will um, lose my voice at some point and then I'll have a day off. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't imagine it all actually going through as it was as it was scheduled but it did we made it all the way through but um that and then having the records out off on a german label really promoted us well and um got got us some attention which is it's kind of interesting because a lot of the british bands often split up and one of the reasons you know they often you know they often been together for five years they've They've, you know, they've gone through a lot. They've had a couple of albums, been sitting together too much, you know, in a transit van. But often it's when they go to America, they do a tour of America, they often say, and then we came back and split up. And I think America seems to finish a lot of British bands off. Because in the UK, you know, it's such a tiny place, isn't it? You can drive around and just basically a, do the... You know, we're time. a band... We're, this country is a band killer. Yeah. It's very hard to, to tour the whole country. Um in one in one go it takes a lot of shows and a lot of driving and a lot of organization and getting along and now gas is so so damn expensive i don't know it's um and also everybody's harder and harder and every 
And it's not just in the UK, but I think a lot of there's there's sort of venues are closing down quite a lot at the moment. So um, there's a sort of lack of places to play. And yeah, there's always issues with a venue that suddenly has a house, house and estate or some flats built near it. And then there's a noise problem and then it has yeah. to close down. So um, but I think that's that's kind of a common thing all over the place at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Not good. Um, but look, we usually get invited to England around the time of rebellion or when it was called Wasted Fest then. And then, you know, everybody's at that for the whole weekend, so you can't really book other shows. So we played London a handful of times. We played Rebellion maybe five times. And then we tried to do some shows around that time period, um, played Leeds and a few different places in it was always tough because basically everybody's at re- everyone that wants to see the Avengers is already at rebellion. Yes, so, so there's like yeah, yeah. it's one stop shop. So then, but Warner's this must have, was this an exciting moment for you? You know, sort of suddenly getting the attention of a major record label after decade and a half. To, you know, in music, which is often sort of doesn't often work that way, does it? It's often you get the if you if you're lucky, you get the record label, and then once that's gone you know it's difficult to then find anybody else to put the music out so how did warner music come into your life well i think that the um the german releases were doing really well and they were looking for um they were looking for female singer songwriters at that time and um they just decided to give it a go with me and um, I had a couple albums with Warners. And it was funny because <clears throat> in the US, I was signed to WIA Germany. And in the US, um, Reprise Records licensed my records uh, from WIA. But it, I, you know, I went down to LA and everything, and they treated me like some strange, odd licensee, you know, like. <laughs> Uh, like I wasn't really an American. It's like, okay, I, I'm here. I can talk to you. I'll do all the interviews you want, whatever. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. You know, but it wasn't the same as if they had signed me over here. Yeah. So it was, it was a licensing deal. So it was kind of like, yeah, um, it was exciting. I, uh, I was pretty happy about it, but the label, I think on the second album, I was drifting a little bit away from, um, well, one thing was weird is that on the, on the first WIA album, the guy that signed me who ended up becoming the president of WIA Europe or whatever, um, he wanted me to re-record a bunch of my songs that I'd had on my past three albums um, and, you know, record them in a, you know, high-end studio and, la 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 and um because he had songs that were his favorite songs and he wanted to have those on the first album and i insisted on having four brand new songs as well so we went and we re-recorded those and i think what happened is a lot of the fans uh that i'd gotten in germany in the first three albums they're like why are you putting out these same songs like they, they kind of were perplexed and um uh so then the, the, and that 
next album after that, I had been going in um, slightly different direction, a little bit more electric. And then they, you know, I had a producer I was working with and we just decided that we weren't going to use acoustic bass anymore, or not too much mandolin and go in a more electric direction. And then, um, which I was enjoying. And then uh, I think that kind of put the nail in the coffin for my earlier folk key fans. Yes. It was like, you know, Bob Dylan lost a lot of fans when he went electric. Um, you know, you write your songs and you think of just having the best um, musical setting for that song that represents it as best you can. And and some people aren't don't want to hear any changes at all. So, no, this is um, so. N- neither of those two albums on on Wea were the big hits. They didn't have the hits that they had hoped for, or maybe you know expected at first. So that's how it is with a major. If you don't have hits, then you know you're done. You're done. <laughs> <laughs> so I came yes. back to America. And, put another band together and recorded um, another album, but it took a long time. So I have had two more albums out after post we, uh, that I, um, that I did myself and I, and I love them. I'm, I'm very happy about this, the songs on both of them and the recording. Because the compilation is is once in a blue moon, isn't it? That's kind of. Oh, that was an earlier one. And then uh, the ones I recorded post we, was, um, is it the pale green um, girl? Pale pale green girl and on Market Street, and um, actually worked with the same producer on on Market Street that I did when I was with Wea, um, and he, I think he worked with the Tinder Sticks. His name is Jeffrey Wood, but uh, I really enjoyed making those records and and putting them out. And but it is you know. If you don't have a major label, then you're not going to get reviewed in Newsweek or wherever. Sorry. Um, the things that I had had from, yes. from being on a major that didn't happen, obviously. <laughs> like, uh, you know, publicity and all that. It's just hard. It's hard to get out there. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the body of work you've got is is just phenomenal, and actually, the music is incredible. Because you also do another version of Corpus Christi, don't you? On on oh six, yeah, sixteen think... sixteen stories down, and that fe- features Billy Billy Joe Armstrong, doesn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. I met Billy. Uh, we wrote a song together when I was on was still on Reprise, and he was on Reprise. He's probably still on Warner Brothers. Um, <laughs> Uh, I wrote a song, I co-wrote with um, Billy, one song that ended up in a soundtrack for um, the TV show Friends. Oh, yes. uh, Which isn't anything I was a big fan of, but it was super helpful (laughs) (laughs) money-wise. It's always always good to have songs in TV shows because they're the gift that keeps on giving. Yes. But, um, and then I also wrote two songs with... um, Friends of mine, Charlotte and Jane from the Go-Go's, 
Uh, and that was the, both of these co-writing was set up by the president of Reprise, Howie Klein, who had remembered me from the early Avengers days when he lived in San Francisco. So <laughs> that was interesting um, to work with people, you know, that co-write with people that I wouldn't normally yes. be, be in touch with. But um, it was fun. It was fun to do. And Billy uh, asked if we could record uh, Corpus Christi. So he said it was one of his favorite Avengers songs. And I was, I said, sure. And that was when um, I met the bass player who's toured with me a lot with the Avengers, Joel. Uh, he was a friend of Billy Joe's and he came in to record and um, we did a version of that. And we also did a version of one of my, we did a kind of punk rock version of one of my um, solo songs too at Billy's house. He had a recording studio in his house. Fantastic. And Which one was that? What was the track? Um, it's called New Day. And I think it's a B-side on one of the singles that came out with the second Wea album called Tongue. Right. So it's some kind of a B-side. and uh, But it's hard to find. Um, but then the version of uh Corpus Christi was really fun and it sounded just like the Avengers and that was around the same time that I was working with Lookout Records to put out a uh an Avengers compilation because the Pink album was like unavailable and under all sorts of legal oh sorry I just I just I was just looking at some of yours tracks so oh. yes, there you go, and that was the That's angel, the angel and, the and the jerk. That is just James. played a tiny God. bit of. Yeah, sorry about um, that. The angel and the jerk is the one I co-wrote with Billy. Right. So I wrote the lyrics, and he wrote the music, and it is very um, pop punk sounding. It is it's very just, pop. Yes, yeah. a, a, a classic actually. Yeah, because because yeah. cut cut you is quite a it's a, a, a quite a sharp one, and especially the track I'm glad glad I'm a girl as well. So. Yes, when you look at those two for for um, that you did with the major, were they quite different? You know, the kind of vibe that you had with them to all the other solo albums. Um, I think that the first album, Cut You, it was with the band I'd been working with for a long time, and it was much closer to to my earlier solo albums, but just a bit more polished and and well recorded. Um, you know, we did the recording all at once and. Yes. We, uh, um, it wasn't like a lot of my albums would be like, okay, so now I can afford to record these four songs. And then next year I'll record another five songs. And then after that, I'll have enough to put out. You know, sort of things were stretched out a bit, yes. but, um, with recording with we, with we, I had a budget. So we just go in the studio, we do all the songs on the album together. Um, so, I was quite happy with both of those records, but I think the first one, Cut You, sounds more like my acoustic stage. And the second one has got more um, kind of alternative rock sounds in it. And um, some, there's a few beats. There's a song with a few beats on it <laughs> that, that are kind of interesting that were done by a, a guy from San Francisco. And, um, 
it just stretches her out in, in a few different directions. Um, and then after that, the ones I recorded by myself, Pale Green Girl and uh, on Market Street, they all have a full band with, with electric bass, drums, guitar, some, some strings and, and um, keyboards, uh, um, organ. Yeah. So they have a different, a slightly different tone to them than, than the earlier, more chamber folk work of the, of the earlier band. So, because the last album you did is nearly ten years ago, isn't it? So that was it on, is. Mark, on Market Street. Yeah, Have you? Is that the is. case then that you've got material waiting to either be recorded or just being released at this stage? Have you still been kind of creating work in in that past? Um, actually, I have written very few songs in the last ten years. Um, a lot of just things going on in my life. Uh, um, taking up my time I guess yes <laughs> but <clears throat> sorry um my mom uh who's in her 90s late 90s moved in with me for five years so I was you know I was working and I was taking care of her and mm -hmm. um that kind of took up a lot of time I didn't do as much touring but most, a lot of the touring that I am doing is with the Avengers. And um, somehow it doesn't seem right to try to make new Avengers songs because the Avengers were a certain group of people and the Avengers that go out and perform now, me and the original guitarist, Greg, but um, it seems like people always just want to hear the albums, this, the Pink album songs. Right, and the classic early song. So I haven't really <laughs> attempted to write anything yes. uh, new for the Avengers. And then my solo stuff—it's just on me. I, you know, I tend to write a lot more um, when I'm in a miserable relationship, and I've been in a very wonderful <laughs> relationship for the last 17 years. Um, so <laughs> I'll just blame him. <laughs> <laughs> he's yes. not making me miserable enough to write songs yeah. no that's that's not really fair but um <laughs> yeah i i just haven't written a lot of songs since uh, on market street came out and when i do uh solo shows i do it with a guitar player sometimes a couple or yes. a small band um i have a lot of songs to choose from and i have a couple new songs but for the most part i'm picking songs from my previous eight albums or whatever that's that's still good, yeah. still good. do you, do you <laughs> enjoy do you still enjoy doing the avengers stuff do you, is that something that's is just kind of kind of easy or convenient uh it's super fun and it is easy and and people get excited and then you always meet some new fans who are like oh my god i never thought i'd see you play and <laughs> you know, I'm waiting for this my whole life or else they're, you know, like my dad introduced me to your album and I love it. And, you know, there's, there's some really young fans and then there's older fans who are like, I never thought you'd come here. You know, it's like, this is a dream come true. It's a bucket yes. list, but oh, yes. Um, yes. it is, it's still fun. And, and I'll, I feel like the Avengers songs are, are strong enough 
notes that, that I can sing almost every single one of them without any kind of like, oh my God, I'm an adult singing these teenage songs. I feel like there's some political ones and there's, you know, some relationship ones and whatever. It's like, I can, I can get behind the feeling of, of every one of those songs still. Yeah. Um, so, do, you, do you still do yeah. paint it black? Yeah. Yeah. That's a popular one. <laughs> it is a classic, um, we it? still do that. Yeah. We do pretty much the whole pink album and then a few songs off of um, Died for Your Sins, which was the album that came out on Lookout long, long after uh, the band broke up when we were, I was sort of gathering together other songs that had never gotten recorded. So, yes. The band, the legacy of the band is still amazing, isn't it? It just does continue on. I mean, if you could have whispered something to your sort of 18-year-old self starting out in this interesting world, is there anything in particular you might have just sort of said, you know, whisper, even if they ignored that wonderful advice with all that experience you have had? I just wondered if there was anything that you would have thought, yes, I would have said that to, to my 16-year-old self. Oh, yeah, I would have said you know never sign away your publishing yes. number one classic <laughs> <laughs> um don't concern yourself with pleasing other people when you're deciding what to write or what kind of songs or what kind of music just do whatever you want to do and don't worry about what other people think i would i would say that right away which is you know basically something i've followed anyway but um that's what I'd say to any 16-year-old who wants to go into music. Yeah. Um, also, you, um, you know, you uh, don't necessarily quit your day job. Just get a day job where you can go on tour, you know. Yes. It's, um, because even if you don't do, don't get into music it, because you think you're going to make a whole lot of money and become a star. Just do it because you love the music and you love your bandmates and you love performing live. and um otherwise you're gonna be a miserable human being <laughs> yes this is this is so true did you keep your artwork going did you sort of s still paint or um i noticed some of your with the album that you did on market street was that a painting that you did yes that's a self-portrait and uh i i actually didn't do that much artwork for a very long time and then um during a big lull in the music career, I went back to school and I decided to um, study painting and printmaking, which is what I used to do uh, because I was trying to get a was trying to get my bachelor's degree so that I could go on and become a um, get a master's of library science because I was working at the library um, for decades and. <laughs> I, I thought, I'll just finish up this master's degree. <laughs> it won't take me long at all. And um, I and I had to do it in art because that's where I had the most credits already, the most classes done. Yeah. So I went back into art and um, then I started painting again and doing prints and I really enjoyed it. And by the time I'd gotten through that whole bachelor's degree and it was time to go and get the master's in library science I was like yeah I I don't think I'm going to be here that much longer and I don't want to spend all my time 
working and going to school and trying to have a band. So I just um, didn't didn't go for uh, forward with anything past the bachelor's degree. And I kept painting though, and I started uh, doing more and more portraits and a lot of mug shots. And I have a website for the art. It's it's called PenelopeHouston.com. Oh, I got Penelope.net. That's my that's the music website. Oh. I have a whole separate one for my fine art. Just yes, I need to. So what was your website for the fine art? It's PenelopeHouston.com. Right, sorry. This is terribly. Yes. So have you um exhibited? Um, yeah, I've had a few a uh, few exhibitions. Um, one in LA at a gallery, and one in on the co- on the coast, the California coast, recently. Um, but a lot of times, I just sell them. Um, if you, if you go to my uh, Instagram, uh, it, well, if you go to the website, you'll see a lot of stuff. Yeah. And but also, I I there were some smaller pieces that I've just gone on. Uh, Instagram, which is just Penelope Easton Instagram, <laughs> um, over the last couple of years that I've just posted, and then people buy them right from there. So, I fantastic! <laughs> this is so exciting. <laughs> you said something a bit earlier, which sounded a bit grim. You said you wouldn't, you didn't think you'd be here much longer. Do you mean not in life? Did you just mean? Oh no, no. Oh good. No, I just that. met working at the library. <laughs> okay. I enjoyed my job at the library, the job I had. Um, yes. And I eventually got up to the I worked at the main San Francisco library, which is a six-story building with all these different departments. And I worked my way up to the top floor where there they have the San Francisco History Department and special collections. And there I worked for the last five or six years of my library work and I started the San Francisco Punk Archive in the History Center and um, then everything got closed down due to COVID and that was the same year uh, 2020 when I retired from the library right. but I still um, I'm still kind of their curator for the punk for the punk archive so I'm still involved with that which is really fun. That's fantastic. Is there a link yeah. from your website to that? Uh, the, there is a SF Punk Archive Facebook page that I run, but I haven't posted on it lately because I haven't been adding anything to the library so much. But um, so they don't have a, there's no website at the mm. library for this collection. Right. But if people are in San Francisco, they can go to the San Francisco History Center in the library and ask to see different parts of the collection. It's gotten pretty big. Fantastic. And they've finally put an archivist working on it who's cataloging it all and making sure it's properly archived. Wow. For, and also, I, I for, sort of exciting news. Las Vegas is going to have a sort of punk exhibition or permanent punk exhibition starting in the new year. So, um, oh, I know they've been after me for about 
two years now and I haven't agreed to do anything with them, mostly My. because I was working for the library, but now I'm not working for the library anymore. So I could talk to them about, you know, some stuff, but, but the Penelope Houston Avengers collection is all going to the library. So it was kind of like, they kept saying, you know, have you got this? Have you got that? I'm like, ah, I do, but I'm giving it to my own, I'm giving it to my collection that I've curated myself. So um, I've been meaning to, you know, talk to them and see what they want to do. Yes. Um, but I haven't yet, <laughs> but it's good that they're doing that. And I hope they have proper archiving, you know, abilities. Yes. We wait and see, don't we? <laughs> could be anything yeah. really i mean I've, I've seen some amazing exhibitions in london at the vna i mean oh, I know yeah that, that's not um arch- yeah. yeah but, right. but i've they're, been to a few yeah they're the real they're the real thing they're not they're going to be able to take you know clothing from uh from vivian westwood and keep it in good shape but a lot of a lot of facilities you know won't have the the you know humidity controlled whatever that is required to keep really old stuff from you know crumbling yes so i'm hoping that las vegas uh punk museum is going to yes actually spend the time to figure out how to keep things in good shape photographs i can't can't remember the person who's going to be running it but i think were they a punk themselves? That's, I can't. Yeah. Well, they're all, yeah, I think they're kind of related to the punk rock bowling right. um, people who have been having a very, very successful uh, festival every year um, for the last, I don't know how many years, 14, 15, this 16 years. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they have their hearts in the right place. I just hope that they will actually hire some real archivists to protect the material that is yeah. given to them or loaned to them. Yes. And have you played Las yeah. Vegas, the punk rock bowling weekend? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think two or three times. I can't quite remember. A few times. And we're going to play this probably, well, I shouldn't say that. We're probably going to play this year. Excellent. This <laughs> we're, we're in talks, let's say. <laughs> We're negotiating the Avengers playing this year as well. So when you go out, did you say it was just you and the guitarist, or do you have a full band? Oh, yeah. No, we have a full band. Um, we've been playing with Joel Reeder, who I was telling you, Billy Joe Armstrong introduced me to. And he used to be in um, Mr. T Experience when he was like a little teenager. And he's been playing with me for since 99, I guess. And then our our drummer, Luis Ayades, uh, has been in Pansy Division for many, many years, and he's playing with us. And then um, I did a couple tours with Hector Penalosa from the Zeros on bass, um, and another drummer named Dave Bach uh, playing drums, just depending on people's schedules. Yeah. So I have kind of a West Coast team and an East Coast team of rhythm section. <laughs> And then That's, it's always Greg, me and Greg. Excellent. Good old Greg. God, it's uh, you keeping the flame burning, aren't you? Because, <laughs> you know, this is amazing. So, yeah. with, so with the crowd, do you look out at people who were there to begin with and young kids who want to see the band for the first time? 
yeah, we do get both. We do get both. And then there's a lot of people that discovered us in the eighties um, when the album came out in 83 and then it just kept going and going and going. Um, there are a lot of people that heard the pink album and the band was long gone and we weren't reformed at that point. So we get a lot of people who heard us um, who are more into eighties or nineties punk skate skate punk whatever and then they see that we're playing and they're like oh my gosh yeah, this is cool. a chance <laughs> this is a chance and on that on your kind of your, your own musical kind of interests and um solo career what other i mean you mentioned the incredible string band and pentangle was there any other folk bands that you came across in later life that um, also sort of had a big influence um Let's see. There, there have been a lot of bands I've really liked that have come out of the Bay Area. Um, I always enjoy Chuck Prophet and his albums and performances. Um, Mark Eitzel from American Music Club. We used yes. to play with American Music Club all the time. And he went on to write some brilliant songs. And then, you know, Nico Case and... Um, there's there's a number of people who've been making records between then and now that I've. Did you go through a bit of a Gillian like, Welsh, Stacey Earl phase as well, or uh, Alison Kreiss, or were they people who are a bit too country than folk? Uh, Linda, Will, Lucinda Williams, I really oh, yes. loved. Um, she was great. The Decemberists, um, getting into that kind of more indie sound. Um, do you still love the Incredible String Band? Well, I have. <laughs> I don't think I've put their record on in a really long time, but they definitely influenced my earlier, my young ears. What about and what about their lyrics? You know, water, water, teach me how to be like water. Did that have an influence on you? Oh, their lyrics are really uh, kind of psychedelic and and odd, and maybe they did. Maybe they did have an influence. Yes. Um, but I, you know, when I write, it's very, it, it's usually quite personal. It just comes, I think it, I write pretty much in my own voice. I don't, I don't usually try to, I'm not usually looking to, to restate anything anybody else has said before. Yes. Not the sort of, is it third person? Anyway, there you go. That's brilliant. Look, thank you ever so much. This has been amazing. And if you want, I can always send you the link and you can always put it on your website if you. Oh, if I would you, love to do that. If you ever do that. And look, best of luck. And thanks ever so much for um, yeah, saying yes to this. And um, yeah, I really appreciate it. And like I said, I've really loved your solo work. It's just been brilliant is to discover this whole body of work, which, um, yes, I've never come across before. So it's been oh, fantastic. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so it's, much. Um, people, if they want to hear it, they can go to Penelope.net and um, I have a band camp page where you can listen to any of the songs a couple times at least before they start trying to get you to buy them. But it's all available digitally there on Bandcamp. Yes, that's great. That's good. Okay, I'll put the link in as well, actually. So that'll be okay, good. Okay, great. But look, have a lovely day. I'm going to go to bed. There you go. Okay. <laughs> Sorry to keep you up. No, that's fine. Okay. Take care. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Bye -bye. Take care. Bye bye. And that was me. Bye.
Oh, sorry. That was me in conversation with Penelope Houston from the band The Avengers. Um, yes, if you want to know any more information, you can go to the Bandcamp page and various other social media platform sites to find out stuff. I will put a link on this um, page as well. But uh, this has been the C86 Show, David Eastall. If you want to contact me, we love your messages. Yes, we do. You can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Keep it positive and groovy. And um, yes, and all the, these have all been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Just do C86 Show and enjoy. Anyway... Have a great week. Stay safe.